Welcome, this is One Hour of Sunshine. I'm your host, Megan Joy Haverda. You can find all 16 episodes on YouTube, iTunes, or on my website, meganhaverda.com. We are filming this show out of the sandbox in Santa Barbara, California, a co-working hub for entrepreneurs and change makers. This show is for business leaders that are willing to openly admit that they use their intuition to make business decisions and to navigate their lives. Imagine when LinkedIn lists intuition as a skill. That will be quite a day for all of us. This show will elevate and normalize intuitive skills in the workplace and allow such skills to be seen as great assets to companies, organizations, communities, and families. Our guest today is Dr. Bremley, W.B. Lingdao, founder and chief executive at the World Impact Foundation. He lives in London, is a landholder in Meghala, India, and he directs incredible nature restoration projects worldwide in conjunction with the World Bank, the UN, and many local communities and organizations. We'll be speaking with him live today from the UN Climate Change Conference of Parties, which is happening in Kawatis, Poland. Every show I share an intuition of the day, and the intuition for this show and my dear old friend Bremley, and I will give you guys a little background story on how we met in a moment, um, but the intuition of the day for this show came from a conversation I was having with a very, very talented chiropractor last night. Dear friend of mine, he's also been on the show, and we were talking about, you know, kind of the state of the world and talking about climate change and talking about over-vaccinating people and talking about overpopulation and talking about Elon Musk, you know, wanting to just go to another planet and, you know, talking about how all these things converge. And in some circles in my life, I have been, I want to say, criticized or given, you know, positive feedback. Hey, Megan, you should be more patient. Hey, Megan, you should, you know, really take a deep breath, be more patient. It's all going to work out. And what my friend and I were saying last night is, you know what? We can't be patient anymore. <laughs> there, is, there is an important impatience happening on the planet because, you know, as we'll get into it later, um, many groups of Oz and others are saying we've got 12 years left until all of our ecosystems implode. So, you know, my intuition for this show is to give people um, a little bit of grace to say, you know what, maybe you should be impatient and maybe you should just take action and you should get to it. Um, and that is, it's, it's where we are right now on the planet and the time is the time to act and that time is now. There's no big brother, there's nobody looking out, there's nobody that's going to fix it all. Every single continent and every single ecosystem and every single species including our own is for us to care for and protect as sentient beings that are watching um, the coalescing relationship that all of them have to one another and what's not working. And so I want to just give everybody permission to not be patient <laughs> and to go for it. So welcome, Bramley. 
my friend. We met a long time ago in Colorado. We met through the Roskies, who are incredible change makers um, globally, and they have very talented um, children and grandchildren and some of them are very much connected to the UN already and are writing books and some are in Hollywood and some are musicians and some are activists but that's where you and I met that was the context that we met in and we met um, I knew them because of a sustainable community called Hummingbird Ranch and you and I bumped into each other and somehow we've stayed in touch all these years and it's really a pleasure to see you and I know that it's really late in Poland and you've been at a conference all day but it's very important that you share with the world what's happening. The UN Climate Change Conference, not everybody gets to go to that. Not everybody hears the truth of what happens inside of those walls. So I'm very, very grateful that you stayed up late for us and you're here to share your experience. So. Welcome, Bram. Thank you very much. Thank you for hosting me in your talk show and in interview. And I look forward to connecting with your audience and sharing my point of view of what's happening in this climate change discourse and uh, what the outcomes are after the big Paris Agreement that happened uh, you know, three years ago in 2015 in Paris and yeah. what's going to happen now. So, uh, as you know, uh, this is the Conference of Parties, COP, or the COP24, which is under the United Nations Framework on Climate Change, UNFCCC, and uh, it brings together 195 countries wow. to talk on one agenda. Can you imagine making 125 countries agree <laughs> on one common agenda? It's crazy. Like, do you eat the same food, guys? Can we eat the same menu? It's madness. So, but this is the UN process that has been going on for many years since Kyoto. And as you know, Kyoto, uh, uh, the Kyoto Accord has finished its lapse. And now there's a new agreement called the Paris Agreement that many um, nation states have signed on, and which uh, is important for the future of our planet. Uh, sadly, the United States has withdrew from the Paris Agreement and uh, it's a very bad signal to the rest of the world and now even Brazil is threatening to withdraw from their declaration wow. and um, it's just sad because uh, we have a big oil, big corporate interests who don't really care about the future of our planet and future generations just yeah. as long as they can fill their own pockets and uh, maybe they think they can move to Mars or another planet. Yeah. But uh, I'm sorry to say that uh, climate change hits everybody, both poor and rich. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Obviously, the poor people are the first to die because they don't have any protection against storms, and hurricanes, and floods, and tsunamis. And or drought. lack of clean water. But at the end of the day, yeah. everybody will get hit, no matter where you live on Earth. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So you asked me what's happening here at the conference. Uh, the first week, uh, I wasn't here. There were just, um, you know, diplomats uh, from every country that uh, negotiate on the text. And the second week is when the ministers, ministers arrive today. So you can imagine the uh, protocol and the security beefed up in yeah. this in Poland. Uh, there are 190 ministers uh, that have flown in from different countries to have the political agreement this week or whatever wow. it may be. But uh, last week, uh, there are four countries that have actually blocked 
the International Panel on uh, Climate Change uh, report that uh, uh, has pulled together resources and, and, and scientific knowledge from scientists from around the world. So the United States, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait are actually blocking this. They, 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 they do not Blocking the release of the report? They, they are blocking the release of the report and also they don't agree with the report and it is really uh, built up the frustration from many other member states who don't have time especially small right. island states right to to have a proper agreement uh, not, not not just to take note <laughs> we can't just take note <laughs> we have to do further than that and yeah the world is yeah is uh, you know just, just 12 years left and yeah. if you don't take action now and you keep pumping oil uh, to make the billions right now, who's going to pay that price? Yeah. Is it the young people, the children that will bear the brunt of the impact of climate change? Yeah, of course it's they really will. It's really unfair. Yeah. And um, I hope these world leaders wake up from these four countries and do not derail the entire process here in Katowice because it could be a stalemate. Yeah. So I'm still hopeful that uh, the ministers will push this agenda of the IPCC report back on the forefront of the debates and do not compromise on the Katowice agreement that will come up by Friday, and even though it might stretch longer, but uh, the civil society and the private sector should take a role and not just wait for governments to take action because yeah. they have made many promises since Rio, but it's, they've never delivered. Yeah. Governments alone cannot deal with the crisis we have now. It has to be a holistic approach where women, youth, indigenous people, farmers, trade union, religious leaders, a scientific community, educators, everyone has to come together and march in the streets for the future of their generations and push their governments to take action. Yeah. Uh, it's happening in France right now, this green, uh, yellow vests uh, protest hmm. in the streets and people are pissed off. Mm -hmm. What? Uh, for the inaction of their governments and it's it's going to spread all across Europe now. So the, this kind of protest has been going on in many developing countries and the media doesn't cover it. Yeah. But now I think people are waking up that you know we don't have much time and we need to act. And I think millions of people should go to the streets in every capital in every country and ask and hold their governments accountable and only then things will change or else I think it's a bit too late to act. We can't just kick this football around from one cup to another cup, another agreement. Uh, we have to act now. And there's been demonstrations here too, but uh, you know, yeah. it's very tight security and it's everything controlled. But uh, I'm hopeful that the agenda will be pushed back in, in, the, in the negotiations with the political agreement in this week that's left. And I hope we will have uh, a not too watered down agreement from Katowice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've skipped ahead to maybe my eighth question, <laughs> but you're very direct and you've been, you know, immersed in it all day long. So I'm glad you got right to the point. But, you know, one of my questions, and we'll, and we'll get back to more of your story and where you came from and why you're even at the UN conference right now. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about men and about leadership styles and about consciousness. So who who do you see at the UN climate change conference right now who's coordinating the parties who who's in charge who are people looking up to for guidance who is the the one that's going to integrate all of the voices well right now since Poland is the host nation for the COP so the president of the COP um, is the head of the Polish state you know the president of, of the COP is the president of Poland 
of his Minister of Environment. This is the host country. So Poland has hosted the Conference of Party three times. So Poland is very committed. But it's interesting that this time Katowice is the actual host of the negotiations because it is also the most polluted city in Europe. Wow. And a lot of people here are suffering, you know, there's huge smog, there's a lot of environmental pollution. Wow. Obviously it's hurting a lot of the young people, especially children, because of the burning of cheap gold that comes from Russia and so on and so forth. So um, it's interesting that the negotiators have actually come to the most polluted city in Europe to talk about climate change. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I think they'll have to wake up. This is a wake up call to actually come here. But actually Poland is also the country that has the only medieval forest left in Europe. And they have European bison still running around here that are protected. So wow. I think the Polish government has to show leadership that uh, nation states who are conference of the parties need to take action as and as an example of Katowice of, of, of trying to control its pollution problem and here in the heart of the city a deal can be sealed for the future generations of, of the whole planet using this as a model but Poland has to play that diplomatic tact to bring the whole international community together to say look guys look at the example of Katowice you don't yeah. want to have this in your own countries you don't want to have children suffer from all sorts of respiratory diseases and people dying of cancer and so on and so forth. It's yeah. no use having money when you don't have help. You know, you're not going to take that money with you wherever you're going. Right. So I really hope that uh, the, the Polish host and uh, the government of Poland will be able to use its diplomatic and tact and leadership to lead the, the declaration, whatever comes up from Katowice, into a, a productive uh, and actionable um, declaration for the world. And the, the purpose of the conference is to actually come to an agreement by the end of the conference? Is that everybody's shared agreement? Yes. Basically, they have to take action on what they've agreed in Paris okay. back in 2015. Now, it's to talk about financing. Who's going to pay? Which, gonna, which country is going to receive the funding? Oh, obviously, the least developing countries, and the LDCs, and the small yep. islands, developing states that don't have so much money. They need help from rich countries, industrialized countries, so they can uh, build their mitigation, adaptation plan to build resilience against the impact of climate change because they're the ones that will um, be underwater very yeah. soon. They're the ones that will face the brunt. And they did not commit this environmental crime. They are just so poor and right. still in the developing state. So it's unfair for them to cut back when they have nothing to stop up with. So rich countries that have polluted their share for the past hundred years since the industrial age, they should compensate for the cost of mitigation and adaptation for the poorer nations that Absolutely. could go could disappear from the face of the planet. Yeah. So this is the time we're talking about financing and it's very important how the, the delivery of these billions of dollars that has been committed by the World Bank, $200 billion, how is it going to go, uh, who's going to monitor that, what kind of projects, what are the criteria, and so on and so forth. So it's quite nitty-gritty yeah. financial mechanics and matrix and all that. But at the end of the day, there has to be an agreement of how this bunch of money is going to be delivered to these nation states that need it the most. Yeah. This is the most crucial part of the Paris Agreement financing yeah and really seeing everybody as equal yes so you know I've been tracking climate change really diligently until uh, since 
1995 and I joined a very wild band of athletes. We were extreme athletes and we ran an outdoor education program out of the Middleton Inn and Plantation, which is one of the oldest plantations in the country in the southeast of America. And we led mountain biking tours and races for the environment and kayaking guides. You know, we did all these different things to immerse people into the environment and into the different ecosystems of the southeast so they could really connect to it and say, wow, this is worth protecting. This is worth considering what's happening upstream so we don't pollute our waters and we have rivers to swim in, etc. Um... So I've been tracking all the data globally and watching how nobody listened. <laughs> really, since 1995, I was looking at soil erosion and sea levels rising and pollution levels and carbon emissions and the lack of integration of green technologies. Um, over vaccinations, I mean, you name it, you name it, you name it, and it all has contributed to where we are now. So as you think about your projects, um, I'm sure climate change has really guided you to decide where you're going to put your energy and where you're going to focus so that you can be effective and also take care of pieces of your, um, pieces of your homeland. So your projects specifically that you're focused on now, other than all of your global work, because you and I are both very much global citizens, it's why we're still in touch, but you've, you've chosen a few spots on the planet to really fix and restore and help and focus on and get results you know, out of. So do you want to talk a little bit about Myanmar and the restoration work that's happening there? Yes, so it's interesting that you mentioned 1995. That was the time that I was... Uh, actually selected to present my paper at UC Berkeley where I, I was working wow. on uh, the eco-regeneration project in the western part of India in the deserts to make the deserts green. It was a USAID funded project with the World Bank in Rajasthan whereby we were working with small farmers who were impacted by the desertification and the growing of the desert to use new technology to make the deserts green again. Yeah. And I was invited to come to UC Berkeley uh, to present my paper uh, because my essay was selected at the United Nations Environment oh. Program Global Youth Forum. And later that year, there was also the 50th anniversary of the United Nations in New York, and I was representing India as a youth rep to speak at the 50th anniversary and focus on uh, climate change and the environment then. So, same timing. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, but uh, zooming back many years later, uh, after completing my uh, masters at Columbia, working for the World Bank, working for the UN, doing my follow-up PhD work at London School of Economics, um, and that research took me back home to the mountains of northeast India on the Himalayan foothills. My father then challenged me, so it was the use of uh, having all these degrees from these Ivy League schools and working for the UN and the bank, trying to save the world when you can't even do anything for your farmers in your own backyard. What's the use of all that knowledge? Good question, so Dad. Him, is that a challenge? Is that a challenge? He said, yes, it's a direct challenge to prove yourself <laughs> that you can do something for your community. Yeah. So having completed my research uh, looking at the impact of uh, deforestation and logging on the livelihoods of 30 villages in my homeland, 
uh, use that same data to go back home to look at uh, restoration of the cloud forest up in the Himalayas where the clouded leopards live. Mm -hmm. Fragile ecosystems in the mountain, econo uh, mountain ecosystem in the northeast of India. So I'm working with a lot of smallhold farmers to restore the cloud forests up in the mountains to prevent soil erosion, to prevent yeah. uh, topsoil runoff and also mudslides and flash floods mm -hmm. downstream. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically I'm a mountain man who has now fallen in love with the sea. So <laughs> then a few years later in 2012 when the Myanmar military government opened up its borders, mm. I, uh, I was invited to go to Burma, Myanmar to look at the mangrove restoration. So here I am from the mountains going down to the sea to look at marine ecosystems completely different yeah, from yeah. my world. So I had to immerse myself into that uh, new ecosystem, learn mm -hmm. everything very quickly, work with two local universities and young people of that country, build a team from scratch. And now, six years later, we have uh, 200 people, mostly women, working on the ground with us with a team of 10 professionals in Yangon, and we have planted 6 million mangrove trees oh in the Delta region of Myanmar. Mangrove trees are quite significant because they are miracle trees. Not only do they grow very fast in in the in the tide, they're called the forest of the tide, yeah. but as they grow, they also block winds up yeah. to 150 miles per hour, storms, hurricanes. They can block waves up to 40 feet, swells of 40 wow. feet, and they can, you know, uh, pre prevent uh, the impact from tsunamis and floods and hurricanes so they can yeah. save millions of lives. So all we're doing there is basically growing a green shield to yeah. protect millions of lives and infrastructure yeah. and livelihoods of very poor farmers who are living uh, in, the, in, the, in the sea close to the ocean. So well, and it provides yeah. home to birds and fish and little, you know, critters that yeah. live inside the yes. roots. Yeah. Yes, they also uh, 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 um, the place where a lot of uh, marine species uh, give birth to their young ones. So it's a, an amazing habitat for a mangrove ecosystem. They are the most valuable ecosystem apart from coral reefs uh, for the, the ocean, yeah. ocean ecosystem. So uh, this project is now growing. Our target is to plant a billion trees. And this is the kind of legacy I want to leave behind before I leave this planet is to complete the planting of a billion trees on, on our planet, starting from Myanmar, and then scale that project around the world yeah. to all 126 mangrove harboring countries on our planet hmm. to protect coastline communities, at least in the equator, wherever they grow, mm -hmm. and to provide jobs for communities who live by the sea, and to also encourage um, ecosystem restoration at scale. Yeah. where we can reward these people through a new concept of ecosystem services and payment for ecosystem services to the people who maintain the integrity of those marine ecosystems. So this is the, the master plan. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes it really makes perfect sense. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, we obviously came to planet Earth with a mission, right? We just kind of popped out and said, okay, we're definitely conservationists. We're definitely part of the conscious tribe. We're definitely heart-centered people. But when as a boy or a teenager or college student, did you really decipher between your ego versus your intuition? Like when did it dawn on you 
oh, this is my will and this is my ego versus this is my intuitive nature and I'm going to follow my heart or follow my gut, follow my instinct. When did that happen yeah, for you? I started from, from my school. I was raised in a, a Presbyterian, Welsh Presbyterian church. I went to an Irish Catholic school and the English who were in my home called my home the Scotland of the East because it's so beautiful and resembles Scotland. They all came there, the English, the Welsh, the Irish, and the Scots. <laughs> that uh, was interesting. So um, I went to an Irish Catholic school, and it was very interesting, uh, very strict, of course. You In know, India. convent school. Yeah. And, uh, but they encouraged a lot of social service uh, and, and, uh, and work outside of school, helping communities and so on and so forth. So when I was in fifth grade, I think I was... 10 years old or something, there was a big cyclone that hit Bangladesh and a lot of people were affected. So um, then I was in a part of this group called Help Age India to help elderly and I was asked to raise money for charity to help these victims hmm. of, hmm. Of, of this impact of the cyclone and you know I was just 10 years old so I thought oh what about food and clothes and shoes apart from just money. So uh, I kind of mobilized all my friends <laughs> in the community and uh, my dad helped me collect all the stuff and we brought it back to school. And yeah, and I, I got this certificate saying that congratulations, you, you collected the most and you got a little award. And it really inspired me and I said, wow, these people are you know, thousands of miles away, but we can help them even in like yeah. primary school. Yeah. If we can take a leadership at, at, this, at this age. So that really triggered uh, something like a little spark in me and I just from that point I just knew that helping people survive and securing their livelihoods and the ecosystems was what I wanted to do when I grew up yeah so it started from there really so uh, it was back in 1985 <laughs> 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 well it's beautiful you know I have a, a son who's almost four years old and he is so incredibly intuitive already and so as a mama I really cultivate his intuition. I really trust his intuition. I encourage him, you know, to, to feel before he speaks. And he's started to use the language, Mama, my gut tells me that we should go to the park and eat popsicles. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not exactly an intuitive hunch, but but you're funny to, to put the two together. Um, so, you know, you have this incredible organization called the Worldview Impact Foundation. I get a sense of why you started it and you're committed, how committed you are to it. But what was the impetus? What was the, that's it, I have to do this right now. What was the, what was the spark? What happened? Well, it started after my research. I knew that I wanted to convert my PhD thesis into something of a living document rather than just a yeah. published document that sits in the library and have uh, silverfish eating over it. That <laughs> <laughs> means nothing. So uh, the goal was to convert the findings of the thesis into a concrete business plan to have uh, a social enterprise uh, born out of the learning, yeah. out of the research. So that's how it was born. And worldview is about changing the view of the world while delivering local impact. Because I always believe yeah. that we have think globally but yet we have to act locally in the countries that we want to create change and impact on the ground so it's all about making an impact 
at the grassroots to yeah. create positive changes. That's the mission's mission yeah. statement. So that's how we started. So I went back to the same villages that I uh, conducted my household survey and research and went back with the women who gave me the data and said, hey, thank you very much. I've got my degree now, so can we get started? Can we start working now? Because you're the guys that helped me get my degree, my research, and this is what Beautiful. the findings that came out. So now we have the data. Tell me how we can engage. So the project was born to create our agroforestry with integrated farming. And that's what I've been doing in my homeland. And now it's scaling up to help many villages uh, restore ecosystems while following an integrated agroforestry um, uh, approach and uh, with farming together with um, bees, uh, with uh, free range chicken and pigs running around in a, in a multi-cropping integrated mm -hmm. farming approach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a great model and I'm working with a lot of small whole organic farmers and I hope that this model we can scale up uh, all across the northeast of India where yeah. we have about 350 indigenous tribes and communities and mine being one of them. Wow, wow. Well, you and I, you know, we have a lot in common, but I'm also very committed to a farm that is far away from where I live, right? So you're in London and I'm in Southern California and yet we're very committed to farms that are, I mean, the farm that I'm committed to is over 2,000 miles away. Yours is how many miles away? It, it, do you ever think at night, oh my gosh, what if something happened and I couldn't get there? I couldn't get home. So it's interesting to have that duality inside of us. You know, we're living in the metropolis, creating change, creating conversations, creating powerful relationships. But we know in our heart that these places that we're farming and we're creating continuity and we're creating food and we're creating sustainability that's what feeds us you know so here we are we're out in the world and we're doing the good fight and yet we're not even living in the place that really feeds us so how do you reconcile that in your heart sometimes as a matter of fact i've spent a lot of time in the field because no such thing works with remote control from London or from New York to <laughs> work with farmers from thousands of miles away. Right. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. You know, you got to be with them on the ground to yeah. build these institutions and slowly disengage when they feel comfortable. But it's all about building institutions that are resilient, that are credible, yeah. and that are locally run. Yeah. Uh, you can have the best business plan in the world, you can have all the money in the world, with all the investors and financiers, but if you don't have a local qualified team on the ground that can run operations for you with or without you it will never work right. you'll fail you might as well just throw your business plan into the trash can you know it's yeah. never gonna work so right. I have to spend a lot of time it's like a relationship yeah. you can't just fly by night like a consultant in and out and pretend as if everything's gonna be okay you're gonna nourish them like yeah. a little tree water them for a few years spend time with them and slowly build a team and then disengage and let them lead so even if a truck hits me tomorrow, whatever I've built in these countries will run with or without me as if I was never there. Yeah. That's true sustainability. It should not be in the head or the mind of just one guy or one woman. It has to be decentralized. Yeah. And we have to train local people to help themselves. So yeah. what I'm saying is that we can't just throw them the fish. We've got to teach them how to fish so they can keep fishing with or without you. Yeah, absolutely. So that's exactly what I did. Build teams on the ground and just guide them from a distance and go check on them ever so often but uh, it's working 
And I'm also glad that my younger sister is there on the ground and she's making sure that Excellent. things are working at the local level with all the women's group and the co-ops and so on and so forth. So she's my boots on the ground and my commander in the field. Excellent. So I'm very glad that you know I have her on board. What's her name? Eva. Yeah, Good job, Queen Eva. Bee. Queen Bee. So she's producing <laughs> blossom organic orange honey. Oh, beautiful. So you're going to wake up tomorrow in Poland, and what are you going to get done this week for the planet and for humanity? Well, as you know, I'm also now working to build a, an agro-blockchain platform to help deliver microfinance and access to credit to smallhold farmers in 35 countries in Africa, whereby they can access loans and credits just Five percent instead of being fifteen to seventeen percent, yeah. killing them. Excellent. So by using the blockchain ledger technology, we can have transparent uh, tran um, transactions, even the smallest one, whereby we can cut the middlemen out, and we don't have to go through banks and yeah. we can finance even the smallest little farmer with just you know an acre plot of land yeah. and help them restore the ecosystems doing the much much needed organic process. This is the plan, and uh, my job is to find 10 ministers from 10 hubs that we're going to create across Africa that will feed and create uh, a food supply chain uh, from these 10 hubs that can coordinate all the 38 countries involved and then create a buyback agreement with uh, hubs in Europe or Asia or even the United States. So it's going to be the first agro-blockchain uh, for helping small farmers in Africa and I want to meet all these ministers and set up meetings with them here because you don't get a chance right. where you meet 190 ministers in one room. Right. You, know? you, you better go to bed. Room. You've got to get ready. <laughs> <laughs> I met I met, um, I met, met 10 of them today, but yeah. not all from Africa, but I met the yeah. minister from South Africa, so it was really great. And we really connected, and we had a drink, and we were saying cheers to Madiba, to Nelson Mandela, whom I had yeah. the honor of meeting back in 2000 at the UN yeah. Security Council mm. chamber mm. when he was briefing uh, the Security Council on peacekeeping operation in Burundi. And this minister knows him well, and he's from the same party. And I met the ambassador of South Africa to Poland, wow. who also knows Nelson Mandela, and who also worked in Burundi. So great connections, yeah. Yeah. kindle spirits. Yeah, and you know, you are the kind of spirit and we will be sharing some of your amazing video and footage when we produce the show. Um, but you have an amazing way of being very happy and being very friendly and lighthearted, but sticking with it, sticking with it, sticking with it. <laughs> and I love that about you. And I just am so touched to be back in your life and i'm wondering if you would like to give the audience their call to action what can they do they're people they're watching this they they want to know okay this is a serious issue climate change is a serious issue and it's impacting many 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 parts of of the world and of lifestyles and life quality what can an individual human being do especially in the united states that's the majority of our audience yeah well you know they're most welcome to come and see what we're doing in these farms because uh, it's a great way to, to travel for people who can. Uh, we've created something called Impact Exploring, 
I'm not calling them tourists yeah. because they are explorers. We're taking them to places to see real life projects and engage with communities. But they're not just explorers. They're going to leave an impact behind. So yeah. the first group actually are right now in my home. They're three Americans from from Texas and Illinois who are in the farm working with our farmers nice. right now, yeah. which is quite amazing. And my sister is taking them along. But I hope that uh, by their trip, spending 10 days or two weeks learning about our culture, our heritage, they will bring back the products that we've created, like the honey, the lemongrass, the citronella, and the, you know, um, turmeric and so on to, to the market. So they will be the bridge between the mm -hmm. communities in India to major, major markets mm -hmm. in, in the US or Europe to co-brand and co-create through these impact journeys and mm -hmm. exploring. Mm -hmm. People can come and see what's, uh, what's our way of life. What do we eat? What do we cook? What do we value? How do we lead our lives on a day-to-day basis? And yeah. maybe there could be a circle of, of co-creation whereby we can learn from each other and share the knowledge with uh, generations to come. Absolutely. That's one. And they can also engage with us in planting trees and making their own honey yeah. and jams and juice and jellies and actually live with the community to see uh, what it feels to be in a little village, uh, which is you know, goes back to the 1940s. It hasn't changed much. Uh, that's one where they can contribute as impact explorers. Another one, they can get involved with a, another platform we've created called ecofriend.world. Ecofriend.world. And every time they take a flight anywhere in the world, they could calculate their carbon footprints and we can plant a tree for them in Myanmar or in India. So. so we are also organizing a very special trip called Ride East in March 2019, whereby I'm recruiting 10 riders from around the world who will go on motorcycles for a thousand miles to raise like a thousand dollars each to support an impact hub that will bring together organic farmers and social entrepreneurs, train them and build resilience and uh, projects in the field in the whole of Northeast India. So I'm inviting okay. everyone to come join us in March. and. Uh, riding a motorcycle, traveling back in time to the 1940s when um, you know the Allied forces were there in that part of the world uh, fighting against the Japanese Empire during British India. And we're going to retrace their footsteps of World War II and then see where they went through the steel well road which has been built from India to Burma and all the way to China, all the way to the Lake of No Return where a lot of Allied um, aircrafts in the Royal Air Force and US Air Force disappeared over this lake mm. quite mysterious. So mm. we're gonna go to that lake and hopefully we don't disappear but then it will come back. <laughs> but the whole ride the Well I was ride, planning on coming until you said that last part. <laughs> <laughs> the, triangle the whole ride is about an education ride to go through communities and villages and farms and enjoying the beauty of northeast India and the Himalayan foothills going to the home of the Royal Bengal Tigers and the single horned Asian Rhino and engaging with local communities Beautiful. and having a real fun back adventure right east. So I hope you will join us. Beautiful. And at the end of this show, please wait for the credits because we will send everybody an invitation and information on how to get engaged with Bremley and hear more about this trip and, and um, possibly go on it yourselves. So this is the end of One Hour of Sunshine. Thank you so much, Bremley, for staying up so late in Poland at the UN Climate Change Conference to do this interview. I absolutely adore you. You're a wonderful, powerful, beautiful man. And um, 
I also want to thank The Sandbox for having us here today and for Aniracom for their production and creative support as well as their marketing and distribution expertise. Bye for now. This is Megan Joy Haverda, your host of One Hour of Sunshine. See you in March. We are taking two months off to focus on family, the holidays, and time with our distribution partners. So see you in the new year. Bless you all. Bye for now.